0: that Larissa is the most Indian-looking woman in the room. She has just come back from a trip to India, and if you come to our core group meeting this afternoon, you'll get to hear some more about that as well. This week we're continuing in our series through 1 Timothy. We are in Chapter 3. Let me start by saying this. Uh, Normally, if you're a business executive... Uh, making it into Forbes magazine would be a great accomplishment. It would be this incredible honor. It would be almost a sign that you've arrived professionally. Uh, unless you happen to make it into Forbes magazine for their list of worst CEO screw-ups of the year. I'm not making that up. That is the title of an article that they publish every year where they outline and document and list out the worst leadership CEO screw debacles of each year. So this ranges from scandals to mismanagement to incompetence of various kinds and sorts, just leadership train wrecks that they can find and they'll put them all together in a list. For example, this year highlighting that list was the former CEO of JCPenney, very distinguished man who had a successful career until this recent stint with JCPenney where under his leadership, The company began to just suffer and bleed. Stock prices went down. In just the last year, the company registered a net loss of some $428 million. And so needless to say, he no longer is employed by JCPenney. CNBC publishes a very similar list, except they're a bit more ambitious. And so they're not just looking for screw-ups over the last year. They are looking for worst CEOs of all time. And so they've compiled a list, again, of mismanagement and debacles and leadership snafus and mistakes of every kind. And you'll find on this list crooks and cheats and people with poor character and terrible leadership, people like Ken Lay, the former CEO of Enron and that whole mess. And then at the top of that list was this man who was the CEO of Lehman Brothers, a man who, under his leadership, The company registered the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history, some $613 billion in outstanding unpaid debts. Time Magazine called him one of the 25 people responsible for the financial crisis our country found itself in. Bad leadership, the point would be, is is a, a problem in business that you could have a great company and yet a bad leader can tank the whole thing. Right? But that's not just in leadership. In fact, people study this in every kind of field and arena and compile lists. Uh, for example, if you considered generals in U.S. history, people have invested time and energy to considering and learning from bad leadership throughout U.S. history and generals in war. For example, there's a man named Burnside, uh, Ambrose Burnside, okay? Interestingly, by the way, he wore his facial hair funny, And everyone used to point and go, there's Burnside. And someone flipped it around and said, oh, that's sideburn. I don't know why I'm even sharing that to you. That really has nothing to do with anything that I'm saying. Um, But this general was known for his facial hair more for his leadership. In fact, he was listed as one of the worst generals because of this battle during the Civil War. He faced this Confederate army. He was a Union general. And his army had 12,000 men. The Confederates he was fighting had 400. So he had a 30,000 advantage times advantage over this other army. So that's a, a, a piece of cake, except for Burnside. He managed to screw that up because he, he found that his army needed to cross a creek. And instead of figuring out a way to do it, there was this narrow bridge. And so he led this column of 12,000 men across that bridge and 400 southerners just stood at a top and picked them off one by one and 400 people held off these 12,000 people in the worst loss of US history battles that you've seen. What made the, the whole thing even more embarrassing was that they later found out that the creek that they couldn't cross was less than waist deep. And so some of the natives that were standing there were saying they could have all crossed without their belts even getting wet But Burnside was just such a poor leader that now we get to think about that and laugh about it, right? They compile these lists in everything. Worst sports coaches, worst presidents, worst political leaders. Here's the point of it all. A team, an organization, a company, a nation can survive all kinds of obstacles and overcome all kinds of difficulties except for bad leadership. If you don't have qualified leaders in place, then the whole thing is eventually going to tank. The whole thing is going to die. That same painful lesson is true in the church as well. And if there was a book in the Bible that highlighted that, it would be the book that we've been spending our week studying, 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, the church that we've been looking at, Ephesus, is a case study for what bad leaders can do to what is a healthy church. If you've been reading through the letter of 1 Timothy with us, you will have seen that bad leaders had taken this once healthy church, a once city-engaging, sinner-saving, gospel-proclaiming, Jesus-exalting church, and now had run this thing into the ground. Over these six chapters, you've heard this over and over again. These bad leaders had come and taught false doctrine, leading all the people astray. These bad leaders had sin growing in their own heart, character that was messed up within so that it created a culture of sin throughout the church. Rather than being known for godliness and holiness, they were leading the charge in sin and leading behind them a sinful church. If you have godless leaders, you will inevitably have a godless church. And as a result of their leadership, we saw that there's chaos in every corner at this once healthy church. Men were angry and violent in service. Women were loud and obnoxious and proud in service. And everything in the church was falling apart. And Paul would say throughout this letter, this has to do with who you have called to be leaders. So then it comes as no surprise That as Paul is writing this letter, he's going to devote a whole chapter, the chapter we're looking at this week, chapter 3, to telling Timothy about the kind of leaders he's going to need to call if the church is again going to be a healthy church. If Timothy's going to get in there and repair the damage and restore beauty and cause this again to be a healthy church, the wisdom that Paul is going to share is here are the kinds of leaders you need to call if this is again going to be a healthy church, right? He spends a whole chapter out of six dedicated to calling the right leaders. And over these next two weeks we'll look at chapter 3 in two parts. In this week we'll consider the first office of leadership that he talks about, the office of elder or pastor. And next week we'll consider the other office of leadership that he talks about, the office of deacon. And we might be asking, what's that? So over these two weeks hopefully we'll explain those two things. If you've been a part of the church at all, you've probably heard of all kinds of boards and all kinds of titles and all kinds of structures and ways that churches organize themselves. Sometimes growing organizations need to do that. But I do want you to know, at least scripturally, there are two offices of leadership in the church, and that's it. There's elders and there's deacons. That's it. Elders and deacons. And this week, Paul is going to say, here are the kinds of men that you ought to call to be elders in your church, pastors in your church. And so this chapter, chapter 3, is going to list a bunch of the qualifications that Paul is going to outline for those who would serve the church as elders or pastors. Okay, he's going to give qualifications. That's an important thing, right? These men need to be qualified. It's, it's this bizarre culture that we have in the church where every other profession is needs qualified folks, but in the church, it's anybody who's willing to do it can do it, right? You wouldn't go fly on a plane with a guy who doesn't have a license, but he just really likes planes. You're not going to board that flight, right? Or you wouldn't lie on an operating table with a woman who doesn't have a med school degree, hasn't passed the boards, but she's watched every episode of Grey's Anatomy. You're not going to lie on that table because her interest, her passion, her love Doesn't mean that she's qualified for it. You don't do those things because if you do, people will get hurt. People will die. Things will go bad. And in the same way, that's exactly what happened in Ephesus. This church was dying. Things were going bad. People were getting hurt because unqualified leaders were being put in places of authority. And so Paul is going to go to great lengths to describe for us the qualifications necessary for a man who is going to be called to the office of pastor or elder. Now, before we see the list together, I'd ask you this. If you were to think of the qualifications necessary, what would that list of adjectives or words or descriptors look like for you? I'd imagine some of us come from all kinds of different church backgrounds. Some of us have been burned by the church. Some of us have literally struggled under bad leaders. Some of us are skeptical about the church, right? You, you think of church leaders in the news, and there's always scandals and mismanagement and all kinds of bad things. And so there's a certain skepticism you might be bringing into that conversation. So I'd ask you, if you were going to say, here's what we need to put in place for churches to be healthy and, and beneficial to the city around them, what kind of qualifications would you be looking for? If you were calling a pastor or looking for a pastor, what would you be looking for? I'd imagine for some of us, we'd want to see on that resume where he went to school or was trained, where he got his theological degree. We want to know, does he know anything? What's in his head? We want to know what he can do with his hands. What can he get done? Is he a good communicator? After all, look at you. You're sitting there week after week for 45 minutes, mouths closed, while someone else gets to talk. So you want to make sure if he's going to talk, is he a good communicator? Is he interesting? Is he smart? Is he funny? Is he engaging? M- maybe you want this person to be a good counselor. If he's going to deal with people and their problems and help people in their life, you want to see if he's gifted as a counselor. Or, or maybe you want to know if he's a good visionary. Right, if he's going to lead a whole group of people or lead a church in a certain direction, you want to know, can he take you somewhere? Can he grow this thing? Can he make it a success? Those things would all be fine and good and important even, and yet they're not the things that show up in Paul's list. So here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear the resume Paul is looking for when he thinks about who should be in leadership in the church this is 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the chair in front of you, or it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Here, the resume that Paul's looking for. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Okay, let's walk through this passage together and consider some of the things that Paul is saying here and and examine some of these qualifications. And then at the end, let's step back and make some observations of this whole thing, okay? What I do want to say at the outset, before we even examine some of them, is though this passage applies to pastors specifically... This passage certainly applies to all Christians generally. So don't be reading this and thinking, man, that's a tough list for Binu and Ajay, right? It stinks for them. So it's not that they can't be drunkards, but you all can be stinking drunks, right? No, as you read this list, every one of them, you go, that's what Jesus expects of me. That's what Jesus expects of me. That's what Jesus is looking out for me. This list is just a vision for what a mature Christian looks like. So this vision is certainly for all of us. Now, this passage applies to pastors particularly and specifically, but it certainly applies to all of us universally and generally. So as you read through this list, let it be an inventory of your own character. As you watch the list, be asking, am I a mature Christian whose life looks like that? Because that's the life Jesus is outlining for us that we should be striving towards. Here's how the passage begins. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So we know he's talking about pastor specifically because he says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and we've said before that this word overseer is interchangeable in the New Testament with other words, like elder or pastor or bishop. At least in the New Testament, again, Church history, church structures today are different. In the New Testament, these all meant the same thing. When you were talking about an elder, you were talking about a pastor or a bishop or an overseer. It was all the same. And so he's saying anyone who aspires to that office, who feels this desire for pastoral ministry, desires a noble task. It's good that Paul says this is a noble task. It's good because just think about where he was saying this. He was saying this to Ephesus, where the men who were pastors were not noble, where the city around them would have probably laughed at the thought of noble pastors. They had made a mess. They had mocked the gospel. They were a terrible witness to all around them. And yet Paul wants to remind the church, though these men have fallen into disrepute, the office hasn't. The office is still a noble task. And that's a good word, not just for them, but for us. When pastors or clergy or ministers show up in our world, in the news or on newspapers, it's usually not for noble reasons. And so Paul is reminding even us that though bad leaders will fall into disrepute, this is still a noble task, that the office of pastor, elder, shepherd, leading God's church in this way is a noble task. In fact, it's something that God will put a desire in the heart of a man for. Do you notice that? He says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, the word aspire literally means he sets his heart on it. He stretches out his hand for it. It literally means one who's reaching out to grab it. That is that there is a desire that God puts in the heart of a man, and not everyone has that desire, right? You're sitting here, many of you would say, I love Jesus with all my heart. I have no desire to be a pastor. And that's good, and that's right. And yet, in his love for the church, God gets involved in the hearts of some and lays on them a deep desire, an aspiring, a reaching out for, a yearning, burning desire to serve as an overseer or to serve as an elder or a pastor. This is what Christians talk about when they speak about calling, right? Throughout the scriptures, when God wants to use a man, he will call him. When he wanted to use Moses to free the Israelites in the book of Exodus, he called Moses. When he wanted to bring Jeremiah to bring a word as a prophet to the people of Israel, he called Jeremiah. He said, I've set you apart while you were even in your mother's womb, I had called you for this. When he wanted to take the Apostle Paul and make him a church planter, he called the Apostle Paul by name and called him to this work. In the same way, Jesus calls certain men and puts in their hearts an unquenching desire for this work work it's not a common thing it's a wonderfully uncommon thing all of us have a call to ministry all of us have a call to discipleship all of us have a call to Jesus' mission but God gets involved uniquely in the hearts of some men to call them to pastoral ministry this desire is not just a a naked ambition where you see the church as a corporation and You climb the ladder wherever you are, and so pastor is the next rung that you're going to climb as well. It's going to give you a position of power or prestige or authority. That's not it at all. It's rather, Jesus has called me to this, and woe to me if I don't do it. A preacher named Charles Spurgeon said this. Listen to what he told a group of seminary students. These were students who were being trained for ministry. He told them Do not enter the ministry if you can help it. If any student in this room could be content to be a newspaper editor, a grocer, a farmer, or a doctor, or a lawyer, or a senator, or a king, in the name of heaven and earth, do that. Let him go his way. You hear Spurgeon's advice? Spurgeon's telling a group of ministry students, if you can do anything... Don't do ministry. If you can do anything else, if you'd be content being a grocer or the king or any position in between, by all means, do that. Because this calling is reserved for those whom God places this burden of, I can't do anything else with my life. Woe to me if I do not do that. I can tell you thankfully by God's grace for both Pastor Binu and myself, I can tell you there is nothing in the world we would rather do than this work. With all sincerity and all honesty, I am telling you there is no other job we would rather have at no other place than to be here doing this. If tomorrow the Eagles called me and told me, Chip Kelly's out, you're in, I would tell them, do you have part-time work? Because (laughs) I can do bivocational ministry if you'd like, Right, God places this burden in the heart of a called man. And so that's the point. You want to call a man who is called. The men that Paul is saying the church ought to call are called men. We want to call as pastors men who have been called by God. So that's a question for any who aspires to be a pastor. Do you desire pastoral ministry? Is the thought of doing something else with your life unimaginable? And Paul says, that's the guy you got to call. A called man, right? Now, a call in itself is not enough because the rest of the list goes on to describe the qualifications and giftings that this man will need, right? That's why the church gets involved to see, does this man fit the requirements that Paul gives? But that conversation can't even begin without a man who is called. And so from that point, he'll go on to list these qualifications and these giftings. And when these three things come together, calling, gifting, and qualifications, then you have what God is doing here. A called, qualified, gifted man. That's who we're looking for. And so what does he say about gifting and qualifications? It's what comes next. Look at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, here's what Paul does. He's going to rattle off a bunch of specific descriptions, and we'll walk through them quickly. But before he does, he gives sort of this umbrella general term to sort of be an umbrella over all the other specific descriptors he's going to give. And the umbrella term is he's got to be above reproach. So what he's getting at there is this. He's going to give some specific examples. And remember... He's writing to Ephesus. He's got specific people in mind, specific problems he's addressing. And so you can be sure that some of the problems in Ephesus influence what adjectives and descriptions came onto this list. And so this list is by no means an exhaustive list. It's not everything that could be said. And so because he's not going to give you every word that could be said, he throws this general term to start it off and says the kind of man you call has to be above reproach. That word simply means that he's got to have a blameless reputation about him. It's not a faultless man. It's a blameless man, right? We don't call perfect men to be pastors because there are no perfect men. There's no one but the Lord Jesus himself who fits this list perfectly as the perfect man. We don't call perfect faultless men. We call blameless men, imperfect men whose lives and character reflect this list. And the idea would be, though we're not calling perfect men, we're calling good men, the best of men that we have, who have this call and are qualified by God and exhibit Christian maturity to fill this role. And so having given this sort of overarching umbrella word. He's got to be above reproach. He's got to be faultless. He's got to be blameless rather than faultless. He then moves into specifics. He starts by saying he's got to be the husband of one wife. Right? So you want a a good man above reproach. He's got to be the husband of one wife. That phrase literally means he's got to be a one-woman man. That's the original language. A one-woman man. That's who you're looking for. A man who loves his wife, is committed to his wife, is faithful to his wife, who serves his wife. You want to look for a man who's not having an affair, is not flirtatious, is not addicted to pornography. You want to call a man whose eyes are for his bride. And the idea would be that just like all the other qualifications, it's not that this man will be perfect, and it's not that his marriage will be perfect, but imperfect as he may be, It should be the kind of man and the kind of marriage that all the other men, both married and single, can look to and say, that's an example of how I can love my wife. His love for his wife should be an example of the kind of devotion every other man should have towards his wife or single towards his future wife. In everything about this, you're saying imperfect as this person may be, let him be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ because that's what the Apostle said. That's what the elders say. So does this man love his bride in such a way that it points you to how Jesus loves the church? He goes from there to giving you these phrases. He must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. And commentators will often lump those three terms together. He must be self-controlled, sober-minded, respectable. That is, he's gotta have a sort of self-mastery about him. He's gotta have a well-ordered life. It can't feel like chaos to be around him all the time. It can't be that being around him is chaos financially, chaos in time, chaos in his home, chaos in his management of things. Being around him makes you just nervous. That's not the kind of guy you're looking for. You're looking for the kind of guy who's got an ordered life, imperfect though it may be, that because he can lead himself well, he is qualified to lead others well also. Sober-minded, right? His emotions are not all over the place all the time. He's got a temperament that can handle this. Self-controlled, respectable. It goes on from there to say he must be hospitable. Right? That's not just he calls the church over to his house all the time and has potlucks. It's actually the idea that he is kind and open towards strangers. It's not even the church that's in view when this word hospitable is used. It's the idea of outsiders, that he is loving towards outsiders, those outside the church, that he is kind towards non-Christians, that his home is open to them, that at his table you'll find people who don't know the Lord. The term comes from the idea that at least back in that day, you would have people travel. And when they traveled great distances, they would have nowhere safe to stay. There were no hotels on the side of the road. And so, if they were going to be safe, often a Christian pastor and his wife would have to open their home and extend hospitality and shelter them. And so, the same idea in our day would be the idea of a, a man whose home is open. Two outsiders, that he's thinking of those who are lonely or who need a table or a place, that this is the heart of the man that you ought to be calling. Goes on from there to say he must be able to teach. It's interesting, in this whole list of many words, this is the only competency that makes the list, right? This is the only competency on the list. In terms of gifting, this is the only area of gifting making the list. Right? If, if we were writing the list we would probably be competency heavy, character light. This list is character heavy competency heavy. Right? It's just one word but it captures so much. He must be able to teach. The single required gifting is that this man must be able to teach. That doesn't mean That every elder we call to the church must be an outstanding preacher. It doesn't even mean that every pastor needs to have a pulpit ministry. It just means that when you're with him and he's bringing the scriptures to you, formally, informally, one-on-one, to a small group or to the whole church, he is able to communicate the scriptures in a way that you get it. He's able to speak of the gospel in a way that you understand. He's able to speak the truth in a way that it registers, it makes sense in head and heart, right? That, that's the idea because the primary work that he has revolves so much around the word that you want to make sure he's able to teach. In Acts 6, a passage we're going to look at next week, actually, there comes an occasion where some need arises in the church and the elders don't go and meet that need Because they say, we can't take ourselves away from our ministry to word and prayer. It's not because that need was beneath them, but because they were so devoted to what they were called to do, the ministry of word and prayer. And that is so at the core of what they are called to do that a man who is called to be an elder must be able to teach. He must be able to communicate the truths of the gospel. His work will be teaching it defending it, believing it. You you want to call a man who knows his Bible, who studies his Bible, who loves his Bible, who communicates his Bible, who can defend his Bible. He must be able to teach. Goes on from there to not a drunkard, right? So he's not addicted to wine. When the pressures of life or marriage or ministry come, he's not finding release with his accountability partner, Johnny Walker, right? right. He is not going somewhere else but the Lord for a release in his life. He is seeking the Lord. He's not addicted to wine, and and this could certainly be broadened. He's not addicted to anything that has mastery over him. Again, imperfect though he may be, warring, fighting, battling sin though he may be. It's not a man who is mastered by, enslaved to, and whatever that sin or slavery might be. It's, it's a man who is not addicted. It goes on from there to say he's not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Again, as you've read through the book of First Timothy, that's exactly what the leaders there were like. Violent, angry men, remember that? Raising their fists in service. Quarrelsome, quarreling about all kinds of meaningless myths and speculations. Violent, angry, quarrelsome men. And Paul's saying, that's not who you want to call. You're not calling a guy who's ready to fight everybody in the church. You're not calling a guy who's saying it's my way or the highway. You're calling a guy, as 2 Timothy 2 will say, is the kind of man who even in gentleness can correct his opponents. Even as if his opponents are wrong, through gentleness, with great grace, he may be able to capture them away from the snare of the enemy by being not violent but gentle as the Lord Jesus was not a lover of money, right? So he's not doing this for a paycheck. He's not doing this to line his pockets. He's not doing this because this is an easy or a cushy job. He's, he's certainly not some kind of prosperity preacher who's trying to dupe the people into giving him stuff, right? He's the kind of man who would do this for free. He's the kind of man who feels so compelled to do this he would do this for free even if you didn't pay him a dime. We have a core group meeting after this. That is not a suggestion for you to bring up as I think Pastor Binu and Ajay should work for free, right? But the heart is he is so compelled and called that, that the paycheck has nothing to do with why he is where he is doing what he is doing. He's not doing this for gain. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, it says that these men who were leaders at Ephesus were doing this for dishonest gain, and that's not the heart here. And it's not just financial gain. It's also he's not doing this for the gain of power or prestige or a position. He's not doing this because he can direct things or control things. He's not doing this out of a sense of identity. If I do this, then finally I'll feel like I'm something or I'm important. He's doing this because woe to me if I don't. Jesus has laid this call on my heart. Verse four, he must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive for if someone does not know how to manage his own household how will he care for God's church? The text is saying the kind of man that you're calling is a man who leads his family well, loves his bride and his children well. In fact, the text is saying Look, why would you call to lead the church a man who's not leading his home? If he cannot lead and manage his family well, why would you entrust him to lead God's family well? Instead, the kind of man that you're calling is a good dad and a good husband and a good leader. That when you look at his home, it is evident that his kids are loved, not perfect, God forbid we ever put that pressure on our children to perform, to fill out some kind of identity for us. Not perfect, but there's a sense in which you know they're loved, they respect their dad. Because if they don't respect their dad, why should the rest of the church do so? They're submissive, the text says. There's a evidence that this man's wife and his children are loved well. Right? That, that this man is not a joke at home. Because His home is a primary and principal requirement for whether he qualifies for ministry. Right? That's this unique part of this particular calling that doesn't apply to other positions in the world. Here's what I mean. No one's going to... You could be in a crummy marriage and still be a great accountant. No one's gonna disqualify you from being a plumber or a surgeon because your kids are rebellious. It it doesn't, no one needs to interview your wife or your children to see if you can get a job as an engineer. And yet this calling is a calling so intense that a man's whole home is in view. And the health and well-being of his wife and his children are in view when you consider whether he is called and qualified for this office. His home is a primary marker of whether he's fit for this ministry. Now, here's what I want you to hear. Notice that the text is not saying call a man to be a pastor and then expect him to live this way. The text is saying make sure you only call a man from among your people who already lives this way. Do you hear that? Because that is Huge, brothers, listen to me. This text is not just for Binu and me. This text is not call a man to be a pastor and then make sure he manages his household well, loves his wife and his children well. This text is your church should be living like that. And your church should be filled with men who are godly husbands and godly fathers. And from among all those options that you have, call the men who are called. This doesn't start applying once you get a title to your name. This is how your life should be lived so that from among you we would have many to consider to call. I want to say that this text applies to us at church. Hear me. This text applies to me because for a long time in my life I was a punk. right? And the truth is some of you are punks. Some of us are, have grown up in Christian homes and Christian churches, and so we hear a preacher talk and you're positive it's for the guy next to you or for the person who's not at church. You're pretty sure he's not talking to you. And I want you to hear me. I was a punk for a long time in that I grew up in a culture where it wasn't prized to be a loving father or husband. My dad, thankfully, was a good man. But I can tell you as a culture, I saw many men who led with authority and were strong men, but it was never the norm or very impressive for a man to be sacrificial and love his bride and love his children. And, and that punkness in me carried for a long time and would have marked the way that I became a husband as well so that my wife existed to serve me as opposed to I existed to serve her And I existed to serve my home. And in fact, one of the best things Jesus did in my life, in love for me, was he put me around good men. He put me around 1 Timothy 3 men. I was in seminary. I was at a great church. And there was a culture at that church where you were expected to be a good man. And it wasn't cute and funny if you weren't a good man. And that culture was so pervasive that it had a profound impact on me. That what was the norm, what was acceptable, what was impressive was a man who loved his bride, was faithful to her, loved his children, served them unto death. And that became the vision of the kind of man I wanted to be. And God got involved in my heart and changed me and is changing me still. I am desperate. On Friday, Binu and I were praying, begging the Lord that we would have a culture at Seven Mile Road of men like this, where what is expected of you, what is the norm here, what is impressive to us is not your salary, your position, or any of those other things. It's how you love your bride and how you love your children, that you daily die so that they could live. You come in last so they can come in first, You sacrifice so that they might flourish. A great compliment was paid to us this week. We were sitting down with a man who told us that because of his time at Seven Mile Road, God's changed the way that he views his home. He would have given himself over to work and to a thousand other responsibilities, but his time here has changed that so that he considers now his calling to his home to be his primary responsibility. I cannot tell you how thrilled my soul was to hear it. And that should be the the standard for us all. Good men who see our wives and our children not as servants to us. We exist to serve them. We love them even unto death. We come in last so they can come in first. We're one-woman men. We're faithful men. So that from a whole host of men like that at Seven Mile Road, we would call some of them who are called by God to serve as pastors. He must manage his own household well. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The text is saying, look, he can't be a Christian for 10 minutes. He's got to be mature. It it can't be even if he's incredibly gifted and white-hot in his zeal, incredibly passionate, you don't call a guy who's brand new to be a pastor. If you put that kind of responsibility, that kind of weight on him, that kind of authority to him, the text says he'll likely get puffed up. He'll be conceited quick. And then pride will begin to creep up in his heart, and the text says, and he'll fall into the same condemnation the devil fell into. Pride out did the devil in and it'll do this man in as well. Instead, you want a guy who's have a, who has a proven track record of following Jesus, right? A man who knows his own character enough to know how messed up he is that if there's anything good in his life, he owes it all to the grace of Jesus. And he's humble because of it and he's got no place to be puffed up with pride. Verse seven, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil, right? The text is saying he must be well thought of by outsiders, right? That's non-Christians, people who are not in the church. And so the implication there is this pastor has relationships with people who are not in the church. Does that make sense? He doesn't just exist to work here, to serve here. He's got to be well thought of by outsiders. And so evangelism and mission and relationships with non-Christians is a part of his work. It's a part of his call. If if you're going to be well thought of by non-Christians, it means non-Christians have to know you. You have to know them. You have to be in relationship with them. And because non-Christians know you, the text is saying, and when a non-Christian hears that that guy's a pastor, it shouldn't produce a really him kind of feel. It should rather produce a, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now I get why he is the way that he is, right? That's the feel that you should feel from a non-Christian when he hears that so-and-so is a pastor. He must be well thought of by non-Christians so that he won't fall into a snare of the devil, right? So he doesn't become another statistic. So he doesn't become another example of a, a leader who messed up, right? Because the enemy is looking to discredit the gospel and the ministry of the church by tripping up its leaders. The moment you become a pastor, you have this giant bullseye on your forehead the enemy because there would be nothing greater and grander than to trip you up and discredit the gospel and its witness to all those around so he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he doesn't fall into a snare of the devil that's the list let me say two words and then I'll be done when you stand back from this whole thing what you see is this overwhelming emphasis on character what you see is this overwhelming emphasis on character. It's not what's in the man's head, right? What does he know? It's not even what's in the man's hands. What can he do and get done? It's what's in the man's heart. Who is this man? That's who you're looking for. And that's fitting because that's what Jesus is looking for from all of you. Hear me. He's not looking for what's in your head. He's not so impressed because of your great theological knowledge and he doesn't despise you because you don't have great theological knowledge. He's also not looking at your hands at what you can get done. So he's not so impressed on the days that you do great works and despising you on the days when you don't perform well. He's looking at your heart to know who are you, to know what his Holy Spirit is doing in you and if your life bears this kind of fruit as a result of your relationship with him. This overwhelming emphasis on character that is true for all of us. So as you hear this and examine each part, here's what I want to suggest to you. Don't ignore the conviction you feel over some of these things. You can't read this list and not have places where the Holy Spirit prompts you about something or prods your heart about something or needs you about something, and and you feel that pricking from the Holy Spirit, don't ignore it. Don't deny it. See that place in that list where your life doesn't register, and repent today. You don't have to leave here without repenting. You can confess that even today. Are you an angry man? Confess that. Lord, I'm not gentle. I'm violent and quarrelsome. Forgive me. Change me so that I look more like Jesus. Lord, I'm not a one-woman man. My eyes flutter all over the place. Would you change my heart? Lord, I'm not managing my household well. It's not evident that my children are loved and my wife is loved. Would you help me to apologize to her today? Repent and be changed. Lord, I'm addicted, and you can name what it is, and you can repent. Don't ignore the grace that God is extending to you even now. He's not trying to crush you. He's not trying to condemn you. He's extending grace. When a doctor tells you what's wrong in your body, it's not to kill you. It's actually to save your soul so that by knowing it, you can be healed. So man or woman, here, Hear the list. And where you see that your life doesn't register, repent. Repent and know that there is one who filled this list out perfectly. His name is Jesus Christ. And how thankful we all ought to be that he is the senior pastor of Seven Mile Road and of every single church. That should be good news to you. Your senior pastor fills this list perfectly. Hear that again because that's good news. Your senior pastor fills 1 Timothy 3 perfectly. His name is Jesus Christ. And he is the pastor to which all the other little pastors point. He's the shepherd to which all the other under-shepherds point. The entire ministry of an elder or pastor is simply to point you to Jesus. When an elder proclaims the word, It's just a shadow of the one who proclaims truth, who is truth. When you're loved by an elder, it's just a shadow of your pastor Jesus who loves you. When an elder leads or guides a church, it's just a shadow of pastor Jesus who leads and guides his flock. When an elder or pastor defends doctrine or the word or the flock, it's just a shadow of the Lord Jesus who defended you even unto death who literally engulfed you in his arms and didn't let anything come, didn't let the wrath of God come, didn't let the penalty of sin come, didn't let the consequences of hell come. He shielded you from it all because he is truly your shepherd, the good shepherd who laid down his life for your sake. And that shepherd will not reject you if you repent today. Confess. Come to him. So our deep desire and my prayer this This morning and this week has been for many, many years to come. As long as God has use of Seven Mile Road Church, may he fill the office of elder with called, qualified, gifted men who serve as pastors under our great pastor, Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him together. Holy Spirit, we ask even now that your word would communicate to our heart better than this preaching did, and register to our hearts truths in a way that man can't. For nothing is invisible or unseen to you. You know us all. If there is anything in our lives that looks like this list, we credit it to the great work of the Holy Spirit. And we are amazed that you who came to die for us because we were the problem, so transform us and change us that you'll use us as a part of the solution. Only you could have thought that up, that you would take wicked men, save them, transform them, and use those same men to serve in your church and to be a part of what you're doing. Thank you for the call that you have on every single man, woman, and child in this place. And we pray that we would be a people that look like 1 Timothy 3 in our character, that repent honestly and completely when we don't, and that we would be so set apart that we would be attractive to those around us. Pray you would convict today, Holy Spirit. I ask you even now to trip up those who are headed towards folly, to stop their way, to bring them back, Where we are proud, humble us. And when we are lowly, encourage and lift us up and give us much grace. Be pleased to make us a holy church that reflects our holy God. In the name of our great pastor, Jesus, we pray. Amen.